So I don't know. Can you be as funny as Ben, Dean? Well, all I got to do is make a bunch of like jokes about your bald head and your beard and be like really energetic and... <laughs> This is the Meteor Club Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about all things Meteor. Welcome, Meteor fans, to the Meteor Club Podcast. Changing things up a little bit, Dean Radcliffe is going to be my co-host today. Welcome, Dean. Hey, what's up? Hey. And we also have Jason... uh, Rady. 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 Yeah. I even asked ahead of time. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't be Josh if you got the names right on the first try. That's true. That's true. Jason is from uh, Dispatch. Tell us, I guess, a little bit about Dispatch and what it is, Jason. We're a startup based in Boston, and we have a platform for basically for managing a uh, kind of any sort of on-demand service. So we have an app for a dispatcher and then the app for the uh, fleet of technicians, whether it's like a plumber or you know, air conditioner repairman or whatever. And then we have a bunch of uh, integrations with big job aggregators. So we get the jobs coming in, they go to the organization, the service provider, and then they use the app kind of like Uber to uh, give it to one of their workers to go fix the problem. I see. And uh, kind of track the, uh, the tail end of the, uh, the job flow. So the original meaning of the word dispatch, not the way it's come to uh, mean in code and JavaScript. Exactly. Yeah. We're yeah. old school like that. Yeah. All right. Nice. So the thing that I found interesting, what I wanted to talk on and, and kind of reason about today was the fact that you mentioned you guys have been doing some stuff with microservices and queues and you actually just launched something on Sunday. Why don't you tell us a little bit about like what you launched and, and kind of how you got there? We're in kind of a unique situation. I actually don't know how unique, but uh, basically we have a legacy Rails backend. Legacy Rails. <laughs> you know, it's, it's old enough we can call it legacy now, right? You know, probably six months ago, we made a little pivot in uh, business strategy. So we had a Rails API back then. And then, uh, so I've only been here around two months, two and a half months, but uh, the current director of technology, John Pearl, came in around six or seven months ago and brought in Meteor particular to you know do the next version of the uh, the mobile app uh, that kind of thing and uh, so we're using meteor now for our mobile app um, we're using it for our microservices which I'll get into in a second mm-hmm. uh, but our, our problem is is uh, we have a lot of old integrations and older clients that use our rails API so we need to we needed to find a way to sync uh, the data between the rails API and our mongodb that meteor uses for a while there, we kind of had two separate applications that weren't really talking to each other. And so the first iteration of our uh, syncing process was kind of just like a, a long polling type of thing where we just had a Meteor uh, server just kind of hitting the API. It had the, uh, you know, the, the credentials to get all the information it needed. So it would kind of pull every endpoint it needed and then update the stuff in, uh, in Mongo. And then we had some sort of, you know, transform function for each collection, that kind of thing that wasn't scalable because basically there wasn't a way for us to run two of those servers because then they wouldn't know which records each was handling. Exactly. So then, uh, unless we had some sort of like document level locking or whatever, and that could get into a whole bunch of uh, craziness, which we didn't really want to deal with. And also long polling in general, it's just, it's just not very efficient um, because we needed to pull that, you know, the entire endpoint. And we even had a thing for like, we don't know if someone deleted a record, you know, 50,000 records into the, 
the pagination. So we needed mm-hmm. to go through each page every so often. And there was a point at which we, we thought that we would kind of reach, you know, a critical mass of, uh, of uh, records in the Postgres database where we can no longer keep up with it just with that one server. Before we reached that, we uh, went to round two of uh, or version two of that process. Basically what happens is Rails, an API, uh, any CRUD operation that happens, it writes to a message queue. We use SQS and Amazon. And then we have another Meteor worker that uh, basically reads from the queue and then handles every CRUD operation and puts it into the Mongo database. So the way that works is uh, using Amazon Elastic Beanstalk's worker tier, uh, which has, apparently has been around for a while, but I just kind of discovered it. For those who don't know, Elastic Beanstalk is kind of like Heroku on steroids, I like to say. It has you know, the, the automatic deployment, that kind of thing, but it, uh, it really lets you, you know, get fine-grained control over what's going on on the server and how, how often you scale and, uh, you know, monitoring of critical processes, and you can use Docker inside of it, which is actually what we're doing for Meteor. Wow. Um, but uh, so what the worker tier does is it, it has uh, another process running on your server called SQS Daemon, which is an Amazon thing that they built, and it just reads from the message queue and then makes a post request to an endpoint on your service that you designate. So we just basically have an HTTP Meteor server that whenever it gets a post request to slash or index, then it handles the message body, which is the SQS message. It's all, it's all pretty cool because then we can test it as if it's you know, a regular HTTP server. We can use Postman to, to make a, you know, test requests for it. And then once we push it to Elastic Beanstalk, it's the same thing. It just reads from the message queue instead of uh, regular posts. So it's, uh, it's actually pretty neat. We just pushed that on Sunday, like you said, and it's, it's humming. So we, got, uh, we were kind of worried about uh, you know, how Meteor would, would uh, run in that kind of environment because it's not really like you know, WebSocket, DDP, all that fun stuff. Uh-huh. It's, uh, it's just basically a web server. I mean, the only reason we really did it in Meteor because we had a whole bunch of packages we wanted to use already written for Meteor, and it's kind of pointless to try to pull them out and turn them into pure node or whatever. You know, it's kind of uncharted territory, but uh, on Sunday, uh, we released it purposely on a day that not a lot of people were using it, and uh, we're running it on two uh, T2 smalls in EC2, and it's handling around, you know, a 1,000 CRUD ops per minute between those two servers, running about 20% CPU, no memory leaks, which is good, and always something to worry about with Node. But overall, I'm, I'm really impressed with how, how Meteor works in that kind of environment, because it's, it's a new thing for... Uh, you wouldn't really think to use Meteor in that sort of situation, but because we had, you know, we have a bunch of Meteor guys, um, we have all our stuff's already written in Meteor, so we just kind of said, hey, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a lot like an architecture I was uh, trying to to get going, and so there's, a man, a lot of questions, I think, because if anyone was playing uh, DevOps buzzword bingo, like, I think, like, you, like, filled out, like, the whole card. Yeah, man. You had, like, every Got Docker possible. in the middle and everything. Oh, yeah, it's not DevOps bingo if you don't have Docker. <laughs> I, I didn't hear Kubernetes. I think that's the only thing I didn't hear. Yeah, I'll work on that. I'm going to work that into our stack. That'll, that'll work in there when they launch on Galaxy. Yeah, there you go. Right. So, right, exactly. And Galaxy will, will run on... Uh, Amazon underneath, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you figured out a lot of things. So let me just kind of throw out a couple of the, the words that you mentioned. Sure. Um, a lot of Meteor people haven't been involved in, in these elaborate deployments. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Elastic Beanstalk. You said that was like Heroku on steroids. It kind of yep. auto scales. Is that comparable to 
modulus auto scaling, Josh? Me or Jason? I guess you, Josh, because auto scaling. I'm trying to think like what are the kind of uh, types well, of auto modulus has an auto scale, doesn't it? Do they? I don't think they. I don't think do. they do. I think you just have the slider, like you do in yeah. room where you can manually. Oh, do that's it. oh manual scale. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Elastic so I, people scale. people have written services that you know you can watch the traffic coming into your apps and tell it to like scale up for you using the API. And I know there's plenty of Heroku apps to do that, but you're saying Elastic Beanstalk kind of does that on its own. Yeah. So what it does is it monitors a certain metric that uh, basically it, any metric on your EC2 instances. Sorry, let me take a step back. Elastic Beanstalk, all it really is, is a collection of other AWS services that kind of, and makes them all run nicely together. So like CloudFormation for your stack management, EC2 for your actual server. Uh, you can use SQS if you have a worker in there. Um, Elastic Load Balancer, that, that kind of stuff. And then also has CloudWatch metrics, which is alarms and monitoring uh, and logs. So what it does is has a metric for, let's say, like network throughput or... Uh, CPU usage or memory usage. So you can set at what threshold you want to scale up and what threshold you want to scale down. So you can say like, for example, like if I get above 40% CPU usage in one in all the servers or on average across all my servers, then I want to scale up and add another server. If I get below 15, then I want to scale down. Um, and it does that automatically via CloudWatch alarms. All we kind of have to do is, is tweak where we want to have it auto scale and then we we set a minimum and a maximum so in production we have a minimum of two so we can do rolling deployments um you know maximum of uh however much we're willing to pay for that month i guess uh-huh. and uh and then we just let it run and it's it's been great so I've, I've actually just kind of been watching it It scales up and down as needed the only issue is it takes probably like 30 seconds to a minute to spin up another server sometimes longer so there, there's a brief period of time where like you're you're, you're kind of running on uh probably won't be able to handle all the requests. Um, but the good news is the T2 type of instance in EC2 has uh, basically you accrue CPU credit. So if you're not using all your compute power, you kind of get to save them up for when you need it. And then it, it does uh, you know, a spike and lets you share memory with your neighbors. Huh. That's kind of what it's meant for, for, you know, for web servers where you don't really know what the traffic will be. It's not like a constant processing or anything like that. Wow. And then the image that uh, when, when Elastic Beanstalk spins up a new instance, is that coming from a Docker image? Yeah. So uh, my first real project when I got here, I started on July 1st, was figuring that out, how to deploy Meteor with Docker, because we wanted to be able to have all of our deployments in the same place, both our Rails stuff and our Meteor stuff. And prior to that, and actually still we have some Meteor stuff on Modulus, um, but we're slowly moving our Meteor stuff over to Elastic Beanstalk. However... The biggest problem is uh, the Elastic Load Balancer doesn't have very good WebSocket support. And, so the, and that's what Elastic Beanstalk uses for stuff where we need like real time and DDP and we don't want to rely on like the HTTP polling, then we don't, uh, we're, we aren't planning to move it to Elastic Beanstalk. So we have a couple options. We can use Amazon, but we'd have to build our own kind of load balancer for that. Or we're actually pretty much just holding out for Galaxy at this point for our, uh, for our mobile app, which is the only thing that really needs the DDP. But for the other stuff, yeah, so we used Docker, um, had to do a bunch of research, and I eventually ended up with, uh, it builds, basically the Docker image builds the Meteor app inside of itself. Um, so you just mount the Meteor code, and instead of, so the, the alternative is like running Meteor build, and then mounting the built bundle into your Docker image. Yep. But I wanted to be absolutely sure that it's being built in on the same platform that it's going to be run with. Uh, and okay, that's, one, right. that's one of the cool things about Docker is you can do that. 
So it took a while because there's some issues with, uh, you know, node tar, I guess, is the package. I kind of followed a <laughs> rabbit hole through like, you know, eight different package dependencies. And there's some issue with running it on Circle CI with sudo and their version of Docker. So we ended up uh, finding out that Travis CI with their new uh, Ubuntu trusty infrastructure works like a charm for building wow. meteor apps in Docker. So that was after a whole bunch of uh, pointer hair out and frustration and stuff. We were, we were considering, you know, deploying Team City on one uh, EC2 instance and calling it a day. But I'm glad, uh, glad Travis works. And also Codeships, um, they have a new beta for uh, building Docker stuff. It looks really cool. So I've been playing around with that. And those guys are in Boston too, so I'm going to talk to them. But for now, Travis is working really well for us. So, yeah, we just build the meteor app inside of uh, – inside of the Docker image. And then uh, our head of technology, John, he's, uh, he wrote this package called MGP. I'm sure some people have heard of it. Basically, if so, if you have like a private repo, but you want to use it as a package, you can use a, a git packages.json file and, it, and run MGP. And then it, as long as you have the GitHub credentials, it'll download them and put them in the packages folder for Meteor. We do that. We basically provide our GitHub credentials to the Docker image. It downloads all the private packages runs Meteor Build, and then also we have uh, all the stuff in there for running tests, too. So we basically, in the in the compiled, the build Docker image, we have a run command and a test command. Um, so you can pull down the image, test it, and run it as, in the same way that it's in production. Um, so we use, uh, we have like Velocity, all that stuff in there for, uh, for testing. So, you know, the, the end result is a self-contained node app, which also has Meteor, so we can run the tests. And then we just deploy that directly to Elastic Beanstalk. That's crazy. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, yeah, and, and, and you, you've hit so many of the points that, uh, that we were, uh, you know, struggling with. Um, one of them was uh, private packages, right? So yeah. did you have private NPM packages um, that, you were, that you were pulling into the build? We don't have any private NPM pa- packages. If we did, I think you can actually specify a Git URL uh, when you require it. I haven't tried that with Meteor, but I have done that with pure node and that works pretty well. As long yeah. as you have the, uh, the credentials, what we've been doing is putting a .NET RC file inside of the repo that basically tells it if you try to clone a Git repository using HTTPS and not SSH, then, uh, it'll use those credentials. Basically we have like on GitHub, you can, you can create like a, uh, I forget what the term is, some sort of special user that only has read access to the uh, repositories. So we just give that user read access to all the private repositories. And we figure like, even if we check the .NET RC file in, which technically has the username and password, if you have access to that repo to see it, you already have access to the repo and you're not going to do anything with username and password. So that was our thinking there. So yeah, then we use uh, MGP, uh, which is John's package. And all it really does is use uh, git clone. It runs a whole bunch of shell commands. Uh, it clones the repo you tell it to in your JSON uh, manifest file. And then it takes the path that you tell it to, and then it puts that path in your packages folder. Uh, so we have like a, a private repo, which we call Meteor Packages, which is all our shared packages essentially. So we just have like, you know, 10 or so entries for the packages in there. It's the same Git repo, the same uh, commit hash, and then just a different path to move into our packages folder. And did you use any uh, private Meteor packages and were they just sub-modules of an application? Yeah, so those those were all our, our private Meteor packages and they're just kind of, I mean, they're, they're in their own repo and they're mm-hmm. like all our private ones are in the same repo for now, pretty much. 
and so we just clone our repo and move all the uh, move all the individual packages that we need over with the right commit hash uh, checked out. And uh, but MGP does all that for you, which is pretty neat. And nice. did you uh, go through any? Oh, MGP package uh, helps mm -hmm. with that. Um, yeah. Did you go through any problem with like? Uh, are you using a Git submodule? And did you have any problems? No, no you're not. Okay. So the last time I used it. yeah, the last time I used Git submodules was probably three years ago, and I, it just gets so complicated trying to maintain everything, man. So using stuff like a package manager, uh, whatever it is, is a fine way way simpler. Yeah, the essential difference is like the package manager lets you talk in terms of like version numbers. Right. And submodules always have to re refer to a specific commit. Commit, yeah. 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 Exactly. Honestly, this is the one thing that annoyed me about 0 0.9 that they've never fixed. You know, when they switched from Meteorite to the integrated package system that Meteor came yeah. up with, yeah. we lost the ability to reference like a Git repo and just tell it to to pull that down and use that. and Oh, really? Okay. Because I, yeah. I haven't been using Meteor. I guess like my first time really using Meteor was when I started here at Dispatch. I've been doing a lot of Node and Go and yeah. PHP. Uh, but I, so I kind of like saw Meteor a couple years ago. And I was like, hey, man, this, is, this scares me because the demo is like, oh, you have access to all the database stuff on the, on the client. You know, have fun. And I was like, well, uh, this is good if you're trying to show some cool stuff. And it didn't really seem like a good thing Secure to use in production. And yeah. so, but then like... When I when I started here, we have you know studs in the meteor world, uh, Eric uh, Dauberton and Morton uh, Hendrickson, which are Aldeed and Rakes, respectively. Ah, I thought mm -hmm. Eric Eric rang a bell. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So th those guys are uh, you know they're famous in the meteor world, apparently, from what I gather. So they kind of uh, they can hardly walk down the street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people. Yeah, when they they came to visit here, they we were walking down and people were stopping them all over the place. Isn't Aldeed a Midwestern guy though? Yeah, yeah he's, he's, from, up he's from Wisconsin. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's up by you. Ben keeps yeah, trying he, to get him to come to your your meetup. <laughs> yeah, Eric, we'd love to have you. Uh, I'll tell um, him. Yeah. <laughs> we can we can riff on the similarities of New England and the Midwest. Like for example, <laughs> like Vermont, like the cheesy uh, state. You know, that's like Wisconsin. <laughs> And uh, the, the, the outdoorsy, you know, Michigan, what we have Michigan over here, like that's kind of like New Hampshire. Right. In the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, that's totally Maine. Like, be careful. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm not offending any Maine listeners. I, totally, I actually totally, love totally. Maine. We have a lot there, man. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, like you had mentioned uh, microservices. Is this what you were talking about or is there other parts to it? Yeah, so this is step one of our... Uh, Basically, like we don't have a monolithic app. That's kind of taboo nowadays, anyway. Um, but it actually, makes sense not to have one. Uh, so what we're we're trying to do now is is two things, I guess. One is we have a hooks system that runs pretty much after every write to certain collections. And for example, like if you uh, uh, you know if the customer pauses an appointment or the technician pauses an appointment, we need to send an alert sometimes or that kind of thing. So we have hooks using uh, so there's a collection hooks package for Meteor. But the problem is we have like four or five applications that all do writes uh, to our Mongo database. So if we change one thing in the hooks, we need to deploy five different applications, which is a hassle. Oh. So especially because we have real customers now, so we need to go through QA and everyone has to sign off and it's, it's, a, it's a big craziness. What we're doing now is uh, we're basically any CRUD operation that happens on the Meteor side is now written to another queue. So this is in development right now, so we're probably going to deploy it in a couple weeks. But uh, so it's written to another queue. And then we have another 
uh, actually this, this worker is written in Go and we call it the message router. So that uh, takes all of our CRUD operations, both from this caching thing from Rails to Meteor and also from Meteor apps. Um, and it basically filters them out and decides how to format them in a way that the other things that need to know about them understand. So for example, we have a worker that anytime uh, a job gets a job status changes from one of our uh, aggregators, we need to send a, a webhook, you know, post request to their API. So we have a worker that does that. So our message router kind of sees, Oh, the job status change. I need to write to this message queue to, for this thing to pick up. And then, so we have all those planned to be running also on Elastic Beanstalk's worker too. So we're going to have, you know, integration workers and we're working on a new notification system for the, in the, in the same, uh, environment. So it's all basically meteor web servers running off of SQS. But, uh, what it allows us to do is just is split things up entirely. And then we don't have to deploy a whole bunch of stuff. If we want to make one change, we just have to deploy that one service. Yeah. And I wonder if you've kind of touched upon uh, like one of the fundamental reasons that you, that so many apps end up introducing a queue and, and what it does for you. You mentioned yeah, sure. having, you know, writing to one place and wanting, you know, to have something in charge of that write and all the notifications that go out. So mm -hmm. you probably didn't want as new consumers of that data uh, appeared, you didn't want to complicate the apps that say, write the yeah. data, notify this, do that. Cause that, that app, uh, if it's in charge of more than just writing to a queue, then it's, it's only going to absorb more functionality uh, exactly. over time. Whereas if you can limit its responsibility to one, write, I think that's kind of the meteor way, uh, pub sub, right? Mm -hmm. Like you publish an event, the producer of the event doesn't know about uh, who consumes the event, right. and uh, that allows for uh, your architecture to scale. Does that sum it up right? Yeah, exactly. So we're, uh, if you want to look at it that way, sure, we're kind of just taking what Meteor already does and expanding it to multiple servers instead of within the same server. So, I mean, the, the primary benefit of, of using microservices is you have kind of a thing that you have a contract with the, its consumers, and basically what that contract says, you give me this formatted this way, and I will give you this formatted that way. And I will do this, perform this one task or list of tasks, right? Yeah. And the cool thing is you, like the consumers don't need to be aware of what's happening inside. They just know that if I give it this, I'll give back this. So what the message queue does is, A, it facilitates the communication between those microservices because then, you know, service A doesn't need to even be aware of service B. It just needs to be aware of when I write to this queue, eventually something will happen. And then also, it, uh, you know, if we get a spike in traffic or whatever, we have the, the buffer so we don't kill our servers. Because what SQS does is act as the buffer, and we can fill it up to, you know, a couple hundred thousand messages if need be. And then we still have the processor working it as it can. Yeah. Right. And is that durable? Uh, it, it's stored to disk? It's persisted? It's, yeah, persistent. It's, it's yeah. distributed. The only thing uh, which could be a potential issue with SQS, which we've had to work around, is it's not first in, first out because it's distributed. So there's the potential, like, for example, with our, with our sync from Rails to, to Meteor, if there's, a, like, an insert and update right after it, then there's, we've had some instances where uh, the update comes through to our worker before the insert. So what we have to do is is catch those errors. So it, we, that error specifically would be, you know, uh, cannot update because document not found or whatever that error is. So what we do is we return an error, uh, any 400 or 500 level error to the SQS daemon uh, in the Elastic Beanstalk worker tier means it failed, 
but then you can set it to retry X number of times before putting it into a, a what's called a dead letter queue. So if it, well, we have it, if it fails 10 times, then it goes into the dead letter queue. We get alerted, hey, something really failed because it failed 10 times in a row, meaning it wasn't just a first in, first out issue. And then we go and look at it. So that's something you have to work around. And also like potentially we can get, if there's two updates subsequently, you know, within a couple of seconds, maybe like the second one can come through before the first one. And we want to make sure we process them in order or at least we process them. So we have the newest, the newest update in our system. So we don't necessarily need to process the one in between. So what we do is just make sure we only update the document that has uh, the updated at date before at the same time as the one we're, we're trying to update. So we do that with an upsert. So I'm curious, like you mentioned using Go, you know, like what, what was the thought process behind choosing Go instead of using something like Angular? So in general, I'm, I got kind of jaded by Node in general. When I was working at uh, another startup called Maxwell Health, also in Boston, and uh, we used Node for a lot of stuff. It was actually my decision, so it's, it's my fault. But uh, we used Node for a lot of, uh, you know, report generation, integration stuff. And in general, I found it was, it was very difficult to pinpoint when you're, when you're doing like long CPU intensive processes, it's very difficult to pinpoint where the bottlenecks are, especially if, you know, if, if there's a memory leak, Node sometimes gets to the, gets to the point where it doesn't crash, but it's not responsive. And that's, mm. that's even worse than crashing, right? Mm. So I, I got to the point where I said, anything that's like mission critical, um, that does a whole bunch of stuff with a whole bunch of throughput, I don't really trust Node to do. That was my mindset coming in just from my experience. Yeah. Um, so what, what we wanted to do was, Basically, our what we're calling our meteor cache, which is the uh, the worker that processes all the jobs coming or the credit operations from Rails, and then our message router, which is written in Go, they're pretty much going to have the same throughput. So we, what we wanted to do is kind of before we're at really high scale, see how they perform, you know, and compare the two. So then we can say, you know, clearly goes outperforming this meteor for for this particular. Um, work for you know 2x or 10x or whatever or it's not even worth it if it's only 2x then i'm the only guy who really knows go here we have you know a couple guys who, who are learning it um, but then it, it wouldn't be worth it right because then you you we were willing to sacrifice the the 2x speed increase for just people knowing how to how to work with it um mm -hmm. so this is this is kind of an experiment but in general i find like if you really want something to like not crash be really fast and be really durable something compiled is, is pretty much always the way to go. Cause then you, you know, you catch all the errors in that compile time and you have, you know, especially with go, you have memory profiling and stuff built in testing built in from the get go. Yeah. Um, the get go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think the, the coolest thing is in deployment, uh, you only have to deploy one binary and with, with node or meteor, you have to deploy a whole bunch of files, everything from node modules, everything, all the compiled meteor packages. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have one corrupt file during that transfer somehow, then you have an issue, right? So we've, we've been able to mitigate that with Docker because we put everything in a Docker image. Make Docker sure. image, yep, yep. Um, but, uh, but still, it's, it's definitely something to worry about. I've actually had that happen when deploying Node stuff, uh, not in a Docker image, but we've just been R-syncing it and the, the two servers' time got a little off. So it, if we deployed within, let's say, a minute, and it got off by a minute and a half, then it wouldn't update some files because it would think that they're not newer. So we ran into a whole bunch of issues. Mm. That's to me the draw of Go. There's a whole bunch of other stuff, but basically this is, a, this is an experiment to see if we actually need something like Go, which is, you know, it's faster. Um, it's compiled. It's, uh, it, it runs on multiple CPUs. So those are all benefits for 
for heavy uh, processing, but the question right. is, do we need it? So. I mean, the nature of having a queue and spinning up workers kind of negates the need for multiple processor support anyway, because you could, sure. in, in reality, spin up, if you have a four-core machine, spin up four workers, and you're kind of consuming all the CPUs at that point, too. But, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how it does work out, like what is kind of the, the speed comparison mm-hmm. between the two. That'll be interesting. And I also think, like, a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, can Meteor scale to a million people or how am I going to do it? And that's not necessarily Meteor's job to figure out how to scale to a million right. people. You know, it's not up to MDG necessarily. Like, can DDP, can a WebSocket scale to support a million people? Absolutely. Um, yeah, but I think there's a lot of parts to an application that you start to break apart and uh, run in different ways. And, and this is a great example of that, right? Like, you guys yeah. decided you needed to be able to do a bunch of notification stuff. And so you broke it out into a queue, and now you're using Go. And, like, that's, to me, that's, I think that's the way you have to grow an application. Like, I, I look at Twitter and, like, they're nowhere near what they were, you know, when they started writing with rails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, you know, like it, it's stupid to pre-optimize stuff because, you know, by the time we end up actually needing to optimize, there'll probably be 10 new technologies out there that we can pick from. So we're deliberately not making decisions based on, Oh, in uh, you know, a year from now, or we're going to have to face this issue, but we are keeping them in mind. And I, I've been saying a lot, like if we can do it right now with the technology, we know, and be more confident about if it'll still work six months to a year from now, we might as well do it. So that's, that's another reason why we went with go for this like high throughput thing. Cause you know, right now we're not, we're not, uh, we don't have near enough throughput to really be worried, but we're slowly adding more and more users and stuff. And, you know, we'll get to the point where it's, we need to start thinking about optimization. And at that time, I don't want to be, you know, woken up at 3am where the, the queue is full and we can't do anything about it. So, mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, these are all great points too. Like you, you look at um, Modulus, like I know a little bit about their architecture and mm-hmm. they use Node for their, their main application and like spinning up new instances for you and all that kind of stuff. But right. in the center of it all, they actually have a Go router. So mm-hmm. their routing mm-hmm. layer is all handled by Go. So Yeah, that's what we figured. Like the thing that like we know every single action in every single system in our entire whatever, all of our servers that's all going through this one node. So we figure that's a good place to try out go. Cause it's absolutely mission critical. Right. Um, so, and, and you're splitting it up into different processes allows yeah. you to, you know, have different implementations, but have you ever uh, run into a problem where you want to reuse uh, part of your, you know, a JavaScript library, maybe the messages on the queue, you know, have like a, a model associated with them or some, you know, uh, JavaScript object for, you know, reading and writing them, but you can't you leverage them from Go? Has that? Yeah. So that's why specifically we're, we're, we're kind of ma- trying to make it agnostic to actually what's going on. We, we just have, it's very configuration oriented. So we say like, if we get this message, send out that message and it's, yeah, I mean, you're right. So that, that's why we're intentionally not making it rely on stuff in uh, JavaScript. We, we've had to duplicate a few things. Um, yeah but they're minor and we're doing it very strategically. So, and once we get to a certain point, we might have to start, you know, if we want to go with go with go, we're going to have to start migrating stuff over and that would be duplicate code. But in the meantime, we're, we're trying to stay away from that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Meteor is obviously a very uh, quickly growing web framework. Mm-hmm. Um, last I checked last year, go was the most rapidly growing uh, yeah. programming language. JavaScript is still, you know, got the numbers, uh, but as far as what people 
who are looking into new things are looking into go is is i think number one so uh there is definitely some strategic value in getting you know your hands on that you know but just because you can you know experiment with a new language and get all this speed i'm still not convinced that everything shouldn't be a monolith what can you what can i'm sure you've you've gone are you knowing rails and and knowing yeah. this I'm kind of being facetious, but what can you say about the, the trade-off? You know, we spent the first few minutes talking about how uh, when you have things in separate repos, you have to deal with, you know, getting CI to pull them in and merge them. So there's obviously a little bit of complexity there, but then you talked about the advantages of, you know, writing part of it in Go. So now what are your, what are your thoughts after this experiment? So that's a good point. So what I, what I like to say is, there's a certain point up to which having a monolithic app is great. But then once you have to start thinking about scale, it becomes very difficult, both in terms of deployment and also in terms of actual, like, handling all the requests. You know, for example, if you have a, some sort of component in your monolithic app that resizes images, that's fine, it resizes images. But what happens if, you know, you get to a couple thousand users and then you find yourself, oh, crap, I need to, you know, resize more images than I'm handling requests or something like that. So then you get kind of a, the different components are not balanced in their usage, right? So if you yeah. want to scale so you can resize more images, you need to scale the entire thing. I think it actually goes deeper than that with Meteor too, because let's say you just have that monolithic app and you're scaling those images in your main Meteor server. And even if you like scale out to two or three servers, like when that server is resizing that image, it's likely a blocking call at that exactly. point. And it's doing you something. Don't, you don't want to compete with your mission critical stuff for research. Well, and you're not, yeah, you're not going to serve up HTML from your server. You're not mm-hmm. going to serve up DDP. So right. people are just going to be sitting there thinking your app's dead. And, you know, in reality, it's just processing some work that doesn't need to happen during that cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The, the trade-off is, uh, actually gave a talk about this uh, Go microservices a couple months ago, but the trade-off is like you're adding more complexity by adding, by splitting things up into services because you're adding not only communicating via code, but you're communicating via the network now, right? So that's a whole right, right. other place where, where stuff can fail. So you really have to do the, do the math and, re- and really think about it. Like, is it worth it? Are the benefits, you know, worth it enough for the potential risk of, you know, network latency, stuff going down and you really need to think about like everything as a whole like if that goes down over here that could affect this thing over there now so i need to kind of catch it and and, uh quarantine it so it's a whole whole different type of thinking yeah i think you're you're absolutely right like doing the math particularly uh when it comes to you know breaking you can break a monolith up into different repos Mm -hmm. but still have it be a single process at runtime so there's 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 different ways I, i don't think it's fair to just call like like there, there's different ways you can split an app up. It doesn't always result in multiple runtime services communicating sure. over the network. But when it does, you do have some kind of uh, ability for uh, one to go down. You have a little more uh, ability for, um, you know, your communication to be flexible. But like you said, you have to do the math, evaluate it for your throughput. Are your network hops small? Are they long? Are, do you know what your quality of service level is intended to be? And being on the architecture, can you simulate, you know, one service going down and coming right. back up? When I was doing, um, so, you know, a similar architecture to this, but I was using Redis mm-hmm. um, for the database and the Redis live data um, driver, I found that the Redis live data driver would crash the, the Meteor process if Redis were to become unavailable. 
mm-hmm. right. um, for a second. And I know, I think Netflix has really been uh, doing amazing things with microservices and they had a tool called Chaos Monkey. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah, randomly shoot your, your nodes in the head and uh and do other things um to well, they also have chaos gorilla i don't know if you heard oh, about yeah i heard, no. I heard about those. They'll, they'll take down like entire sections of like availability zones so like oh yeah, know, yeah amazon us west like they'll just shut down all their servers there and make sure that everything still runs smoothly yeah, yeah that's, that's like a devops mecca that's what i want to get to <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah. So like, I think when people hear a lot of these new terms and they're like, do I really need like Docker or elastic beanstalk or all these things to do this microservices stuff? You may not now, but if yeah, you, think, you don't, but if, if you're you think thinking about Netflix level scale and you, if you're, if your company has those kinds of problems or is preparing to solve those kinds of problems, these are your, the rungs on the ladder you're going to be climbing. Yep. And so, we'd, we'd much rather trust, you know, the AWS guys who pretty much everyone in the industry trusts and have to spin it up on our own and have one more thing to worry about when we don't even have a dedicated DevOps guy right now. So might, yeah. as, might as well defer as much to them as possible, at least for now. Yeah. So I think it's interesting too. Like we're talking about this like microservices and you're talking about like pushing data out. I also think it can be interesting to just like consume data back as well. Like I've been working on a project recently where we need currency exchange data for money and like there's not great APIs, but what you can do is maybe kind of glue together two or three good data sources and get a better, like more complete picture. Right. And so uh, I've been working on a service that just kind of goes out and fetches all that data, stores it in Mongo and then serves it up as like DDP to an application. Uh, which I think is interesting. And then just write a package that makes it easy to consume that data using DDP and you just right. that server and kind of go at it. So that's, that's a good point. Cause uh, we've been thinking about like what will happen potentially when, you know, cause we, we think that the bottleneck in meteor is going to be the op log, or at least if we continue to use Mongo, cause there's a certain point at which there's so many records going through the getting inserted or updated in the database that the merge box can't keep up uh, with tailing the op log and it'll just kind of bog it down. And uh, that's not, that's not really something you can solve with scale. You can solve with optimization. So what we are thinking of is how do we do things like that? Where we say like, if we're doing a subscription to three different collections, maybe we can have a background processes that process that takes the relevant data from those three collections, puts them into one collection. We have a subscription to that, mm-hmm. um, which is what you were doing. Or another thing is like, maybe we don't need real time for this particular page. So we can do a HTTP long pull instead uh, or just kind of hit a rest endpoint or whatever, and that we, we can reduce the load on the, the merge box. Yeah, yeah you can also do a Meteor part. method call as well, right, yeah. data back and mm-hmm. consume it that way too. Yeah. Like I said, we're nowhere near, near the level of scale where we really have to be worrying about that, but it's always good to keep in mind, uh, especially as we're re-architecting things. We don't want to have to go back and say, oh man, we should have done it this way. You know, That's going to happen regardless, but we, we like to think that we... We uh, did all the research we could. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, I've, I've been working on a blog post. I've got it like a third written. I should really finish it. Um, <laughs> but it, it talks about the fact that Meteor gives you like smart breakpoints. Like if you think about the architecture and how Meteor is built, it actually has, what is it, like four breakpoints kind of between it. And 
you see them right now kind of focusing on, uh, or three breakpoints, I guess. You see them focusing on the, the first client side breakpoint, which is. Uh, I'm sorry, Josh, breakpoint? I'm, yeah. I'm not getting. Like point of failure, you mean? Well, here, maybe, maybe this makes more sense if I should. Kind of like architectural division? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. I thought that I thought you meant. Just, okay, so if you're watching the video, if I ever put these up, you'll, uh, oh, you'll you see. I'm sharing the screen here and you can see these connection points kind of between everything. And so, you know, obviously like meteor has been focusing on this piece right here, like changing it out so that you can put react instead of blaze or angular instead of blaze. Eventually like everyone's really interested in maybe replacing the connection between node and Mongo and trying to figure that out. But the really interesting piece is, is actually right here in the middle. Like you already have a way to ditch Mongo if you want and just implement a DDP server that, you know, works with whatever it is you want to back it by, you know, right. That that's kind of interesting to me. Like I've, I've never actually had, I can start with something very simple and light. And as I need to scale, like it becomes very easy to kind of break those pieces out and do something interesting. Yeah, we were actually playing with, you know, not actually taken seriously, but we have a guy who's really into Elixir, uh, which is the Erlang variant, I guess. And he, mm-hmm. he wants to write a DDP server in Elixir to see if we can use that as the back end for our meteor front end. Well, so, things like that, so. yeah, we've, we've got a, um, the, the place, one of the, I used to be a partner at a place called Gaslight, their dev shop here in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and they have a guy there that does some Elixir stuff. And he wrote an Elixir, I thought this was always backwards, but he wrote an Elixir consumer like a ddp consumer so that oh, you cool. could consume like a node backend but I'd, I'd much rather consume an erlang backend yeah, than yeah. Backend. so uh yeah i absolutely think that would be interesting and i know you know at the same time like you look at uh kadira and some of the stuff that he's doing over there i know for a fact that he's using go and his mm-hmm. ddp implementation over there so that he can consume things right uh using the meteor front end and that's kind of interesting to me. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of cool places we can go with this, and it's it's good that we're we're all talking about this when uh, when we don't really have to worry about it, because then we have you know, a whole bunch of things on the list that we can try, and uh, hopefully we'll have the the freedom to try you know a whole bunch and, and pick the best solution. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think even Meteor itself like gives you a lot of room for growth because even I, I have a feeling that the difference between Go and Meteor, like when you guys run this test, like I don't think it's going to be like substantial. I don't think it will be either. Yeah. And, you know, that, that tells me like, I think fibers can be efficient enough. Um, mm-hmm. And so like if, if tooling is the problem, maybe the tooling can get better, maybe not. Like right. those, are, those are tough areas actually, like tooling for performance. Like, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that really drew me to Go is, is that it's like, you know, it has a Go test command built, built in and Go vet and Go, you know, the profile command, I forget what it is, and benchmarking built in. Whereas it seems like in JavaScript and you know, Node and Meteor by, by proxy, it's kind of an afterthought, right? So it's good for like quickly developing stuff and getting stuff yeah. out off the ground and ship. But like when you really want to get into the meat of like optimization and that kind of stuff, it's, it's really difficult to, to dive right in. So that's like if I were to, to start from scratch, or maybe like teach someone how to do computer programming from scratch, I would, I would probably recommend Go just because they have all those tools at their disposal. And then it's good to like come from someplace like Go or C where you have to really worry about that and really know about memory management and all that really annoying stuff. And then jump into JavaScript where it's like super easy, super fun, and everything's mutable. But at least you have the stuff in, in the back of your mind. And yeah, maybe, you know, maybe it's patterns. painful. 
I got my degree in Boston at BU. They didn't actually teach from, uh, they kind of taught from C. Mm -hmm. And then Java uh, was was just, you know, coming out as the thing like, oh, you got to take these Java classes. And I I felt uh, cheated that I didn't get to learn a little bit of scheme uh, (laughs) or Lisp or any Lisp. So I've, I've kind of gone back, but I think you're right that like go uh, has a a robust set of tools around it um, that kind of hit the major areas of like kind of the the hardcore CS kind of stuff. And JavaScript is still like the most accessible uh, language. You know, you, you already have the dev tools you need in your browser, you know, kind of friendliest on board. And I hope you do finish that article, Josh, because like that, that DDP and the, the breakpoints that I see what you mean there is really, really cool and illustrative. And just like, you know, HTTP was meant to transfer documents with links in them. Yeah. DDP is meant to transfer data. And so like, I think DDP is a higher level over HTTP, just like, uh, you know, there are languages that are actually more robust than JavaScript, but yeah, we're still hard to believe, <laughs> yeah, hard to believe but uh, we're in it because it's the, it's one of the best ways to get stuff done quickly. Yeah. I actually found that. So I, so I started with PHP back in, you know, 10, 15 years ago, John jumped right on the node train when it came out and then kind of fall, fell off node to work with go for a while. Now that I'm back working with node, I found like the patterns I use are very different because I'm, I'm trying to implement, you know, goes as a lot of interface based stuff. And really like, and encourages like really simple, really small functions um, and almost enforces that. So when I'm back in a note, I find myself writing way better code mm-hmm. just from having done that leap and come back, which is yeah. kind of why I said like, it's good to at least have that sort of experience with different languages or like Lisp even. I'm sure you can, you know, get some things from functional programming like Lisp or Elixir and come back to Node and find yourself writing better patterns. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, like for me coming from Ruby to JavaScript, like at least in the Rails community, there's a lot of thought around like single responsibility principle and those kinds of things. And, you know, I think that that tends to make you a better programmer. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we're getting some background noise there. Okay. <laughs> the aliens are landing. <laughs> I don't know. Some cops doing something. Else. <laughs> the thing that I'm interested to see too, is like how ES 2015 maybe starts to shape the landscape as well, because I think, yeah, a lot better tools in there for writing cleaner code. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're starting to get uh, the availability that other languages have, like for how we're writing things or how we're controlling things. Like it's, it's all included in ES 2015 okay. and, and hopefully it'll get even better in 2016 as well with more promises and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, really thrilled with that. I'm putting a blog post together coming out this week, probably. Uh, well, definitely. About, yeah, well, I guess depending on which week this podcast is airing in. It, it may even come out this week. I don't know. It may be out yeah. tomorrow. So you're under the gun now. <laughs> there will be an article. <laughs> I'll, I'll submit a promise for the article in this podcast. <laughs> there you go. And then when it resolves, you guys can read it. <laughs> cool. Um, you know, one uh, other question. I don't know how we're doing on time here, but um, when you have microservices and you're putting messages on a queue, uh, do you ever run into an issue where the message format changes over time? 
So let's imagine on a certain day up till noon, the messages had the following, you know, five fields. And then you added a sixth field to the message format uh, or maybe even, you know, God forbid, renamed a field. Yeah. You know, do you have to actually now deploy all these things at the same time or have you figured out ways to listen for messages of a specific version or how's that affected you? So that's a good point. And what I, what I try to do, and I haven't really thought explicitly about this, but what I try to do is the consumer shouldn't enforce the format of the message. That should be up to the thing that publishes to the queue. And if you do that, then you can say, you know, you can change the message format and it won't crash necessarily if you change it in a way, if you're just adding a field, let's say. Right. Uh, so you have to be very smart about that. And then what you can do is on the, let's say the one consumer that, uh, you know, you care about this new field, you can just add it to that and deploy that. You don't have to deploy everything. I mean, it's, it's pretty difficult to version it if you're going to actually change the entire message schema. In that case, I would, I would even say make a new queue mm-hmm. and, you know, put a different wow. consumer on that queue. That's probably the easiest way. We yeah. haven't run into that situation yet, but that's probably what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I maybe come from the, the rescue school of thought from rails and like, generally just passing a singular ID and then kind of working out from there. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Then, like you, you're completely limiting the message you're passing to just be like one tiny, tiny piece of data as small as you can make it because I don't want to like pass all that data back and forth through something like, you know, Redis or something like that because, right. you know, it, it costs memory and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, with SQS, I think you have 64, 128 kilobytes to put whatever you want in there. So we just put a huge JSON payload and, you know, it's distributed. It's, it's good. We can trust it. I won't go down or whatever. So, but yeah, that, I think a, a good alternative, was, like you said, even with SQS, you can kind of write to a Mongo collection with the payload and just send the ID through the queue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, that, 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 that uh, moves the problem, right? So now, sure. like, yeah. the message is not in, in there, it's, it's, it's elsewhere. But I can see how, like, you won't have any, like, deserialization problems there. Mm-hmm. I would just throw out that, like, I've used a, a system that I, I, I learned about from a, a piece of software that would uh, read in music uh, notation files. And so basically, if every file, or in this case, every message, declares what version its schema is for, yeah. then it makes, it makes it able to uh, invoke the right, you know, if you don't have a converter, you can actually use like a migration system as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you roll a new format uh, interpreter out, it only has to work, say you have 1.1 and 1.2. At the moment you write a 1.2 producer and a 1.2 consumer, it can have a little uh, method to, to upgrade any 1.1 messages that it finds to right. 1.2. So as, as long as it's uh, at least you can you can update it like that. So I, I would say yeah, if if it's a situation where you can kind of tweak or transform the message into that new format, then you keep it in the same queue. But I mean, there's, there's no reason why you, if you're going to change the format, you're trying to you're going to jump through a whole bunch of hoops just to get it to you to go through the same queue to the same consumers. Yeah, I'm just looking for ways to keep the teams that maintain the uh, the different microservices, if they're different teams or right. even different individuals, uh, from yeah. having to do releases in lockstep. Yeah, that's so. That's the other thing, right? So that's what I was talking about. You got to do the math. So there, there are those situations where you have to, you know, turn this service off and release that, and let that queue fill up, and then do this and make sure there's nothing yeah, in there. Yeah. That's actually what we did on Sunday. We had to turn a whole bunch of things off because we didn't want to be processing the old messages until the new one. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, it's a lot of coordination involved, and I, I would actually like the next time we do something like that, I would even try to write some code to automate it. 
because it's uh, there's a lot of room for human error, and you, you know, forget something or whatever. So, but uh, it worked for us this time. What? what nothing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm kind of drawing a blank here. I don't know. Um, let's see. I I also had uh, nope, nope. That was it. <laughs> you did say JSON. I was going to ask what what uh, language uh, are you able to write from JavaScript and read from Go? But JSON is really the yeah. Know, I mean, you can do JSON. Actually, Go has a cool thing called Toml, which is it's called Tom's obvious markup language. Some guy <laughs> named Tom made it, but it's really cool. It's kind of like YAML, or like it looks kind of like an INI file. But Go uses a lot of that for configuration. You can also use it for, for uh, data serialization. I'm um, sorry. Did you say an I and I file? Yeah. You know, from way back. <laughs> the face palm will just have to be uh, imagined by uh, the audio-only listeners. <laughs> no, that's a nice throwback. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Go, Go has some cool... Uh, Serialization, anything XML, JSON, any, yeah. any type of that stuff. So, and also, if you want to get really fast and you get into proto buffers, that's a whole another topic for another day. But that's if that's you know outperforms JSON by 100x or something like that. So, yeah, the binary serialization, right? right? Yeah, protocol buffers. Yep. So, you guys, uh, what's your team size, and are you uh, looking to build it? What's going on with that? Uh, yeah. So, what are we? We're at four guys local to Boston uh, and then we have Eric and Morton who are the meteor resident meteor studs but Eric's in Wisconsin and Morton's in Denmark and then we have a team uh, the rails guys uh, they're all Ukrainian one guy's in Finland and the other two are in Ukraine and then we have a couple contractors working on a desktop app which is angular I think right now uh, but yeah so we are we are looking to grow uh, strategically I and mean, we don't have any real need for you know, to double the team, but it's, it's kind of like we're putting out some feelers. And if we find a person ideally locally in Boston that, uh, you know, that fits right in, well, we won't even hesitate to, to bring them on. It's always good to have more smart people. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. So it's a good place to be when you're not rushing. Cause I, I came from a, from a place where we kind of falling over ourselves to push out stuff and we, we didn't really have time to stop and breathe. So this, this is good. We're doing everything very, very smart. And thinking through stuff. Cool. Awesome. All right, Jason. Well, I want to say thank you for being on the show. It was really yeah, awesome my pleasure. Talk about we'll talk all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Hopefully everyone finds some value here. Uh, if people want to follow up with you and, and talk to you somewhere, like where would they do that at Jason? Yeah, you can, uh, I guess Twitter's good. I'm at Rady with my last name, R A E D E. Okay. Um, awesome. Not many people have that last name, apparently, so I got to tag <laughs> on Twitter. Um, or you can email me at jason at dispatch.me. Uh, those are the two best ways. Awesome. All right. And then, of course, uh, we've got the Meteor Club. So it's at, at MeteorJS Club on Twitter. And uh, we've also got the Slack chat room. Actually, I'll when we get off here, I'll invite you to the chat room, Jason. Yeah, cool. That'd be fun. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Good value there. All right, guys. Well, uh, tune in next time. I think we're going to be talking about React and people that are implementing React in Meteor apps. So it should be interesting. Sweet. Thanks, fellas. This podcast has been a Meteor Club production. You can find out more information about Meteor Club at meteorjs.club. It's pretty easy to join the mailing list and stay in the loop. Again, that's meteorjs.club.